one of the first steps that we need to do is actually teach women and girls that, um, that our sexuality is our sexuality and that our bodies are our bodies. You know, that these, these human beings that we are, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, are, we are not things that exist for others. We don't find our worth. Um, you know, in how much we make others happy, whether that's sexually or whether that's, um, you know, how much we serve others or all of the many, many, many other ways that um, women grow up learning that our worth uh, is something that is um, measured by other people's um, pleasure with us. Yeah, that's Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson, and I have a special co-host with me this week. Uh, Adam has been uh, really um, getting taken to him, uh, if you will, uh, between his job and and everything else going on in in life right now. And so he's a little under the weather, and uh, we had this guest lined up, and we had a special co-host in mind anyway, uh, because uh, this is a very important topic. Uh, that we uh, we talk about in this episode, and so we brought in the big guns. We brought in an expert because we are two very white dudes, and uh, this topic really uh, pertains to uh, to women and and kind of how a lot of young women were raised, uh, especially within evangelical Christianity. So, Katie Herdert, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, everybody. I'm Katie Herdert, and. I um, am a social worker. I'm a clinical social worker, so more like a therapist, counselor than anything. But there are some letters behind my name for anybody who's interested. It's MSW, L-I-S-W-S, L-I-C-D-C, and that just means that the social work board recognizes me as an independent social worker with a supervision designation and that I also do chemical dependency counseling. So that's been my specialty across the last, oh gosh, it's been like six years since I graduated. Has it been that long? Pretty close, yeah. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. So so Katie and uh, her husband Luke uh, have been friends of ours for a really long time. So um, so yeah, I guess I would have known you pre all the official fancy letters behind your name. Yes, yeah. (laughs) Now now I did a lot of work and got some got some stuff, but still the same gal. Oh my gosh! But you were so you were perfect for this episode, and I want to talk a little bit about that um, in the intro. So the guest we had on this week is Linda K. Klein, and she's got this new book out called Pure, and it's all about the purity movement within specifically really kind of affected. Um, evangelical Christianity. So for me as a little Lutheran boy growing up, not so much, uh, but I definitely felt the remnants of it because it was kind of coming out of its uh, heyday, I think, probably around the time when we hit college. Um, and But there was still some of it there, and I definitely remember it. Um, and on the male side, I mean, of course, there were books out there that a lot of us are familiar with, like I Kissed, Dating, Goodbye, and, and things like that. And what's interesting about that is that both the purity movement um, in that sense, and uh, some of the other books that kind of went along with that, um, a lot of folks, uh, even the authors themselves, are realizing now that uh, not only were they uh, not effective in the way that they had hoped, but in some ways even damaging. And so, 
So Katie has uh, not only read this book uh, multiple times, but with your uh, your background in counseling, you you offered some some valuable insights. So well, and not just my background in counseling, but I am a white female raised in a midwestern town as the daughter of a pastor uh, of yes. an evangelical <laughs> Christian church. So. Um, she was writing this book about me and for me and uh, a lot of my peers. It, it was very impactful and revelatory, and it just made a ton of sense out of all of the things that I experienced and, and made me really wake up and take notice of, of some of that stuff. Yeah. Talk, I mean, talk about that a little bit too, because um, we were kind of chatting before we started interviewing, and you had mentioned that you had gone to a uh, like a Christian university that's kind of historically known as being, you know, pretty uh, uh, rigid, w- yeah. shall we say? Oh, yeah. We had, you know, 45 degrees, door open <laughs> kind of policy, feet on the floor if the men came into the women's dorms. And definitely it was co-educational, but not cohabitational. <laughs> you did not have... You, was that their bumper sticker? Men's, might as well be. Um, <laughs> men's dorms, women's dorms, and, and never the twain shall meet. Uh, yes. <laughs> or only on Tuesday nights from six to nine. <laughs> so how did you grow up so well-adjusted then after going through all this? A lot of therapy and work. Say, I've met Luke. You know, (laughs) (laughs) sorry, Luke, love you. Yeah, he's uh, he's a party. (laughs) Yes, he is. His unicorn shirt uh, will go down in infamy. Yeah. Oh, he has several. Um, Just not. (laughs) Of course, he does. No, just one unicorn shirt. How could that? How could that do? I think everyone should know Luke at some point in their life. I I wish everyone could. (laughs) He's a lot of. He's a joy to be with. (laughs) Yes, he is. Uh, so a little bit about Linda K. Klein. Um, obviously, she's got this great new book out. Um, she spent her career working at the cross-section of faith, gender, sexuality, and social change. Uh, she's also the founder of Break Free Together, which she talks about at the end of the episode. Um, also a Midwesterner at heart. She now lives in New York City with her family. Um, so again, just a really powerful, important episode, I think. And uh, it was eye-opening definitely for me. Uh, as a as a male, um, and a lot of the stuff I I'll be honest I was not even aware of, um, and some of the some of the the really extreme cases where you know there's a lot of damage that was done as a result mm-hmm. of kind of this um, you know probably a movement with the best intentions. Yeah, we want to give it the benefit of the doubt. I don't know. Yeah, yeah I think it was in- intended to help um, kids not make mistakes in their sexuality, but it went way, way too far. And, and just shame. I mean, the, the subtitle of how the movement shamed a generation is incredibly accurate and, and really poignant. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, hopefully, um, you guys enjoy this episode. Those of you that were personally impacted by it, hopefully, um, it gives you a little bit of hope. Um, but, uh, thank you guys as always for, for joining us. And uh, those of you that have joined our our Patreon campaign, um, you can find that through our website, www.thedeconstructionist.com. If you go there, you can also connect with us on social media. You can read our blog uh, when we're um, actually posting it on a regular basis, which I promise we will do more in the future. Uh, But we've got a lot of really cool stuff 
um, that you can check out on the website. You can listen to the episodes directly from there. Uh, but if you if you like what we're doing, um, the biggest way that you can help us reach other people is just by giving us a five star review on iTunes. That helps us get noticed by other people, um, or just share it with your friends. Um, that's just a huge way. Word of mouth is is typically the way that uh, that we've been able to to really advertise as uh, like a little ground roots. Um, you know, or grassroots, ground roots. Grassroots. Yeah. It's late. Very I don't good. know what I'm saying. Grassroots, <laughs> grassroots uh, podcast from the Midwest. So, um, thank you guys so much for all your support and love. Um, if we haven't got back to you, uh, you know, if you've emailed us, uh, we apologize. Um, try again. <laughs> we will do our best. Um, and, and, uh, once we get through this year, I think, uh, things will settle down a little bit and Adam will be back. I promise you. Uh, that poor guy is just, uh, he's taking a beating right now. So, um, so he will be back, but, um, uh, what else was I going to say? Well, it was exciting, uh, being on and thanks yeah, for thank letting me so stand much, in for awesome. Adam and, and jump in where he's, uh, where he's trying to do his best to wade through life. That's no problem. I'm really, I was really pleased to do it. And this turned out to be just such a pleasure to be a part of. Yeah. Thank you so much. What a, what a cool thing uh, to get to do. And, uh, and uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll have you back at some point to love it. lend your expertise. Super happy to do it. Awesome. So thank you guys so much. Um, again, uh, we have been the deconstructionists and uh, here is our amazing guest. Uh, without further ado, Linda K. Klein. Well, welcome to the the Deconstructionist Podcast. Uh, We are so excited uh, to have you on tonight. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. I'm delighted to be here. So before we get started, uh, one of the things I think that's really crucial uh, to the conversation we're going to have tonight is really laying the foundation for the basis of your book. Um, so it's this idea of, of the purity movement, and I know a lot of our listeners, our ears are probably perking up as we speak, but for those uh, of, of our listeners out there who don't know what that is, um, kind of give us the high-level overview. What, what is that? Was that? And, uh, and, and why did you decide to write a book about it? Hmm. So great question to start with, because, um, you know, the reality is, is that the purity concept, this idea of people being either pure or impure, um, you know, as by which we mean other people's definitions of, you know, your purity based on their perceptions of your sexuality, um, you know, that's language that's been around for a really long time. It's not actually new. You know, your grandparents may have been, um, you know, raised with a a message of purity, of sexual purity. Um, But something really interesting and new did happen in the early 1990s that I'm really focusing on. And that is that the white American evangelical Christian church started this purity movement that very quickly became a purity industry. So you all might remember, or some of you remember very well, uh, you know, very personally, the purity rings and the purity balls and the purity pledges and the purity themed Bibles even, right? Where you've got, you know, non-biblical material dedicated to the importance of your sexual purity in your Bible. 
Bible uh, that really that really uh, took this idea of sexual purity that had been around and intensified it, really saturated the lives of people who were raised within this evangelical subculture with this message, and uh, and also spread that message in a more diluted form uh, to the rest of the country and, in fact, to much of the rest of the world. There were some really concerted efforts to bring this message to um, to a global audience. Yeah, one of the important things I think that you note is that um, one of the the pieces uh, that contribute uh, contributes to the purity movement is just is the specific um, idea behind um, what we call what we would probably call in this podcast like sin management, uh, meaning like you have to perform a, or behave a certain way in order to to get into heaven, and that feeds directly into this this idea of uh, being pure, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know what's so interesting is that it's, you know, you, you talked about you have to behave a certain way to get into heaven, but the reality with, with purity is that it's actually a little more complicated than that because it's um, such an ambiguous idea. You know, there's a lot of different definitions of, uh, of what makes you pure or what makes you impure that people hold. So ultimately, it's actually not about how you behave. It's about how other people uh, perceive how you behave uh, and how other people perceive your motivations, you know, all of these really ambiguous, difficult to measure things that um, aren't about you, but are about other people and their assessment of you. So, for example, uh, you know, this idea of, um, of uh, the modesty doctrine, that you have to dress in a particular way in order to make sure that there aren't any sexual thoughts and feelings had toward you, or that no one uh, makes any sexual choices toward you. You know, it's something that you're held responsible for, um, but ultimately it's, it's the behavior and the thoughts and the feelings of others, um, you know, and, and different people will hold you responsible to differing extents. You know, one person might say, you know, if your skirt is at knee level, that's fine. Whereas someone else will say, you know, uh, no, 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 it has to be down to the ankle. Whereas someone else will say a few inches above your knee is fine. You know, <laughs> so there's all this right. ambiguity. So it's not even about your behavior. It's, uh, you know, if we, we're only so simple <laughs> as yeah, to be about sure. your behavior, you know, and clearly defined ways. It really is about other people and what they think about who you are and, um, and your behavior and your choices and your heart, really. People are trying to assess the purity of your heart yeah. at the end of the day. Well, I just remember every youth camp or retreat always had those modest as hottest bathing suit or shorts length rules that were just so penned in for, but for women only, you know, they're really like all the boys would be out there playing basketball with no shirts on, but it was very emphasized for women. And so it's this all or nothing Madonna or slut that there's this sexuality tap that has an off switch for us that, um, is, has been such a confusing message, I think across the board. What do you think is the happy medium of sex positive, but giving like sufficient attention to what a sexual relationship means emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually? Hmm. Yeah. So to answer that, let me go back to something that you said within what you said that was so great. You said modest is hottest, which I've actually never heard before. Oh, it was, it was amazing. It was around. <laughs> that, was, yeah. that was the expression like, that we used. 
Right, right. But you know, so I, so obviously that is amazing, and thank you for bringing that into my <laughs> yeah. Use it freely. <laughs> right, right. But you know, but the other thing about it is that I think it says a lot about our unhealthy teachings because at the end of the day, the modesty doctrine and the purity doctrine really are still about the objectification of women. Absolutely. Right. So this teaching this teaching that modesty is hottest, right? That modest is hottest, you know, is a, is a great, a great little um, teaching moment because it's this illustration that at the end of the day, we're still telling girls and women, um, you know, you're supposed to be hot. You're -hmm. supposed to be desirable. You're supposed to be someone that people want to marry. Um, You know, and in that way, we continue to objectify girls and women and to tell them that, um, that they should make decisions um, based on uh, whether or not they'll be desirable to other people. Um, based on their bodies, Absolutely. <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> so it is a very similar sort of summing girls up, uh, as, as their bodies being the most important part about them that we see in secular society. When, um, when we see the hypersexualization, the desexualization and the hypersexualization are both sexualization and objectification. Completely. Um, you know, this is something that, uh, if I can plug another book, uh, that, um, Jessica Valenti in her book, the purity myth, uh, talks a lot mm-hmm. about that was really instructive for me when I was really starting to, um, this was about 10 years ago that that book came out. Um, to try to to try to make sense of the of the um, the purity doctrine within the larger secular society, you know, because the purity doctrine is actually so so deep within the evangelical world to be sure, but also such a major part of our society as a whole. Yeah. You know, this idea that. Um, you know, we learned in, in the purity movement that there were pure girls and impure girls. And in secular society, we learned that there are good girls and bad girls. Mm-hmm. And we mean exactly the same thing. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're talking about defining people by their sexuality. So, so, you know, so that was something that I was really contending with back in the day and trying to really understand. And the purity myth was really helpful for me to understand how actually these things come from the same Place. They come from the same root, which is a objectification and a sexually shaming approach to um, to sexuality in general and to women and girls' sexuality in particular. So to have taken a long time to get there, but to answer your question about what's healthy, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, we really need to go back to the core ethic and question the core ethic that um, that teaches that teaches people about sexuality using shame. Mm -hmm. So this idea of purity is in itself a shaming concept that I think cannot be saved um, and cannot be made unshaming. You know, shame um, is this feeling I am something bad or people will think that I am something bad as opposed to guilt, which is this feeling, you know, I did something bad. And when you shame somebody by saying you are pure or you are impure, right? Mm-hmm. We're not talking about what you did. We're not talking about, um, you know, uh, what you wore. We're talking about who you are. Right. And that, that shaming message, which is really particularly saved for women and girls, as you well, you know, well know, yeah, um, you know, that shaming message, I think, cannot be redeemed. And uh, so we really need to go back and, and think about how we talk about sexuality, um, you know, in a completely, completely different way. 
I, I, I really want to get into, uh, specifically, you mentioned the, the keyword, uh, shame. And I, I, I think Katie's got a really good question for you here in a second. Before we, before we get into that, um, uh, one, one of the things that was really a profound moment uh, while reading your book is just this kind of dualistic uh, idea of, I think you just mentioned it, you know, this, there's either girls who are pure, who are Christians, who are marriage material, and girls who aren't pure and who aren't Christians. And that's, that is a very powerful picture that's imprinted on you from a very, very young age, uh, because it's not a subtle message there. You know, if you, if you want to stay pure, then you, you have worth. And if you don't, then you have less worth. And the, these uh, descriptions that you talk about in the book, um, these, these analogies, these like food analogies uh, were shocking. Uh, so, so talk a little bit about, because I thought this was fascinating, because after that you talk about um, some various studies that you cite about the impact on the brain uh, that I thought was very, very interesting. Hmm. Yeah, the food analogies, you know, so they, um, the larger category is called object lessons, and there's a whole big subcategory about food. <laughs> um, oh, we have, we, have some, we have some problems that we're working through um, when we're talking about um, people's worth using food analogies and object analogies. Um, so, so the one example that I um, share in the book that an interviewee told me about, although I could, I could name for you about 20 examples, um, was the Oreo cookie example, where uh, you know she was in a group of her peers and she had a woman stand up in front of the room and hold up an Oreo cookie and say, "Who wants this Oreo cookie?" Obviously, everyone raises their hand. Everyone wants this Oreo cookie, and then she uh, passes the Oreo cookie around the room and she instructs every young person to spit on the cookie or to drop it on the ground. By the time it gets to the front of the room, the Oreo cookie is disgusting. And then she holds it up in front of the room again, and she says, now who wants this Oreo cookie? Nobody raises their hand, and she proceeds to tell the group that this is an analogy for a girl or woman before and after she has had sexual experience. You know, the analogy being that every student who spit on that cookie is, um, you know, representative of somebody that she had sexual experience with. And now that she has had all this experience, now no one will ever want her again, you know. Um, so, you know, so this, this is something that, you know, I've heard around lollipops and um, hamburgers and, you know, just an endless number of foods. And then there are all kinds of other objects, you know, the used car and the new car. The, um, the uh, bicycle is another variation of that one, the bicycle that's never been ridden before and the one that's all rusty and broken down. You know, there are just all kinds of objects, which, again, is this illustration of the way in which we objectify women and girls in the purity movement. You know, literally we are literally it's object lessons. It's making exactly. women and people objects. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And they are sometimes men sometimes are part of these lessons, but generally speaking, they're about girls and women because because we objectify we objectify everyone within purity culture, but we have a, a, a unique objectification for women and girls. Um, yeah, exactly. So so we are literally objectifying people. You you hit it on the head. You hit it on the head, and it's such an illustration of of um, of how of how we are part of a larger cultural problem of objectification, and you know again objectification and shame these these go hand in hand because mm-hmm. if shame is this feeling you are bad you know being reduced to an object 
you know, is a, is a way to, um, to, to speak through a lens of embodiment, you know, it's to mm-hmm. speak through a lens of R, you know, you are that clean cookie that everyone wants, or you are that just, disgusting, spit on, dropped on the ground cookie that no one will ever want. You are that untouched hamburger that just got delivered that everyone wants to eat to devour. I mean, I mean, talk about metaphors. Oh God, right. You know, or you are that last bite of hamburger, you know, that who wants that last bite of hamburger that's all slobbery and full of everyone else's spit, you know, um, which is, Yes, problematic on so many levels because, you know, the hamburger, you know, once it's gone, you know, once you, once you have had sexual experience, the analogy, you know, sort of the end point is that you have nothing left. You, you are nothing, right? Yeah. You have been devoured. You have nothing now. You are nothing now. So, whew. so yeah. you know, so this, so this really sets us up for the shame response, for this feeling, yeah. I am bad, or people will perceive me as bad. Yeah. So how do you think we can make accountability more balanced between the sexes in terms of sexual choices? Like, do we need to start the conversation around empowering young women to feel like they have sexual choices, that that shame message doesn't entirely describe who they are, that they're a whole person, that that they they get to make a choice about their own sexuality and how they embody that and that doesn't define everything about them. And so can we shift the cultural narrative to make sure that young men's sexual and choices young men's sexual choices don't involve making the decisions for the partner that they're sexual with? Yeah, you know, there you you hit on so many important things within that, Katie. Yeah, I know it's um, a huge question. I'm sorry. <laughs> it was big. It was big. Yeah. Um, maybe I'll zero in on one, and then Go you'll call it. me back if you want me to talk about some others. But I really like what you said about it being about um, about us owning our sexuality. You know, within a culture, again, within purity culture, and also within our secular larger culture, um, purity culture into, you know, we learn so little about our sexuality actually being our own, you mm-hmm. know, um, whether you have to be, you know, hyper, hyper um, desexualized for other people or whether you have to be hypersexualized for others. I think about this um, study that um, found that when they interviewed uh, men about whether or not they had a good sexual encounter and what made it a good sexual encounter or not, um, that the majority of men assessed their sexual encounters based on how much they enjoyed them. And when they asked women the same questions, the majority of women assessed their sexual encounters based on how much the men enjoyed them or how much the other person enjoyed them. Wow. It's been a while since I've read the study, so I can't remember if it was only heterosexual relationships or, or if it was all relationships. But, um, you know, so, so even in society as a whole, right, we have women trained to assess whether or not a sexual encounter was good based on whether or not the other person was happy with it. Yeah. So I am with you. I am with you 100%, Katie, that one of the first steps that we need to do is actually teach women and girls that, um, that our sexuality is our sexuality. Yeah. And that our bodies are our bodies. You know, that these, 
these human beings that we are, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, are we are not things that exist for others. We don't find our worth, um, you know, in how much we make others happy, whether that's sexually or whether that's, um, you know, how much we serve others or all of the many, many, many other ways that um, women grow up learning that our worth uh, is something that is um, measured by other people's um, pleasure with us. Yeah, that's big. Let not my heart be troubled Cause he's faithful and he's true And though my heart is lonely I'm longing for I, I think it's interesting too because one of, that makes me think of um, one of the sections of your book where you're, you're recounting one of your interviewees is talking about um, just the experience of um, uh, or, or being allowed rather to experience certain feelings like anger or sadness, um, and she says um, it's just evidence that you're you're giving into the devil and him wanting you to feel that way, uh, not having joy in the Lord. And on the flip side. Another interviewee that you talked to talks about how she shouldn't experience happiness either because that meant life was far too easy. And it's like, what an impossible tightrope or tug of war mm-hmm. as a young girl. You're, you, you, know, you, can't be, you can't feel anything. And so you talk about putting on this brave face, which you know, made me think of um, we interviewed uh, Glennon Doyle a couple of years ago. And she talks about that in uh, her last book as well. It's just kind of putting on this, this mask because she was trying to protect portray this, uh, you know, this image that she thought other people wanted to see, like, what would you say to, to young women who are, who are experiencing that? Yeah. So I'm going to tell, um, uh, a a little story that's not actually in the book in relationship to that, but first let me answer the, how you ended that. Um, what would I say to, to girls who are feeling this way? I mean, this, this is one of the pieces of advice that my interviewees give. I asked all of my interviewees what their message for readers was. And I pulled out three categories that came up again and again. And one of the um, categories that they gave as a, as a word to readers who are struggling was to know yourself, you know, to, to just, just know, just know your real feelings, you know, just know your real thoughts, just know your real um, beliefs. You know, sometimes within a culture where we have our thoughts and our feelings and our beliefs tightly regulated and where we're told that if our, our thoughts or feelings are um, in the categories that we're not, quote unquote, supposed to be having, or if we believe differently than our leaders believe or whatever it is that we are wrong, that we are bad, we learn to push those things down to the point where we don't even see them after a while. You know, we don't even recognize our anger. We don't even recognize our sadness. We don't even recognize our, um, our feelings of worthlessness, you know? So, so my, my word of advice would be as a first step is just to, just to know, just to see it in yourself, just to recognize it, you know, as a neutral observer, to be able to say, I'm angry, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. and I'm, I'm not going to judge that. I'm not going to say like, but I shouldn't be just, I'm angry. Mm-hmm. I like, you know, that is a fact, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I'm just going to let that be for a minute and I'm going to, I'm going to just 
honor that it exists. So I wanted to share a story that's not in the book that I wanted to have in the book. And I just couldn't, I just couldn't quite get it in there. And, um, I talk about it in, um, there's a new series that's coming out for churches on sexuality that, um, that I co-wrote a chapter on, um, about women and sexuality. I think it should be really interesting. It's coming out with spark house, um, uh, is the publishing house. So you can keep your eye out for it. I don't know the name yet, but it's coming out next year. And, um, and so I write about it there, but basically here's the story. Um, there was a really interesting trend that came up a lot in my interviews, and that is that a surprising number of women told me that they didn't feel like a person. Ugh. And, and many of those same women later would tell me that they felt like a person at this point in their life or that point in their life. And so I went through and I started to look at when people talked about feeling like a person and when people talked about not feeling like a person. And over and over again, um, I found that when people said that they didn't feel like a person, it was um, times that they uh, were largely because of gender expectations um, and, and sexual expectations are tied to gender expectations and partially, you know, sort of good person Christian expectations. They were tamping down their true selves. So they were denying their true feelings. They weren't allowing themselves to feel anger or to feel sadness or whatever was verboten. They were um, uh, hiding trauma that they didn't feel that they were supposed to talk about, like having been raped, for example. Um, they were um, denying themselves paths that they knew they were supposed to take, um, you know, a career path that they were passionate about but that they felt you know, wasn't, um, wasn't something that they were supposed to be doing. Um, so whatever it was, <clears throat> you know, and in some cases they were just, they were just, um, denying themselves at every turn, you know? So every time someone said, do you want to hang out, whether or not they actually wanted to hang out, they said yes, because they felt like a good, a good Christian woman would always do what other people wanted her to do. <laughs> you know? Um, so, so eventually they had gotten so detached from their own true, feelings and desires and um, needs that, that they started to feel like they weren't humans. They started to feel like other people were people. They existed for themselves, but because they existed for others, that they weren't people. And then when they talked about starting to feel like people again, it was um, at times when they started to tell the truth of, about their lives, um, when they started to feel their real feelings, um, when they started to pursue their own um, what they actually wanted in life, whether it was in small ways, like saying, actually, no, I don't want to go out tonight because I'm quite tired <laughs> or big ways. Like I'm going to pursue this career path, like becoming a pastor, even though everyone says that women shouldn't preach. One of the things that I noticed, um, that kind of relates to that is it almost seemed like because this is happening, uh, and engaging women at such a young age that it almost in a sense, like, uh, stunted their development, kind of robbed them of uh, their ability to grow into a young woman and kind of left them ill-equipped for, you know, the realities of life after, after they got to, you know, I think in, in, in your example, you, you talk about going off to college and then just kind of like experiencing life for the first time outside the constraints of this kind of community. Yeah, you really, you really, you really read that in there, huh? Yeah, that was something. <laughs> Thing that that was something that I don't think I say outright, but it's it's present. Um, the original title of this book before um, before you know I, I had an, uh, a publisher and we re looked at the title. The original title was Man Made Girls, wow. and um, oh, that's big. Yeah, yeah, right. 
Yeah. And, um, and I, and I uh, talked more prominently in original drafts of the book about what I called eternal girlhood. Um, you know, this, uh, this experience of being told who you're supposed to be, um, in, in such a way that, um, that doesn't allow you to, to step into your whole self and to really grow into your sort of fully formed self, um, that is, um, uh, encouraged by complementarianism where, um, you know, uh, which teaches that girls and women are um, supposed to complement boys and men by being their followers. Um, you know, men are the natural leaders, God, God given, um, sort of role of leadership and women, um, the natural followers that, which, which is their ordained order is what complementarianism would teach. So, you know, so really what that, what that creates is a system where you have, um, where you have, you know, girls who are under the quote unquote headship of their father, um, and then are passed to the headship of their husband. And in the meantime, you know, are sort of in this dangerous zone where they're not under the headship of one particular person, if they're an adult single person, but are supposed to be under the headship of, of, um, of basically all men, (laughs) you know, in the meantime, and, um, and how this perpet, this perpetual, being beneath this perpetual being under the headship of someone else, um, you know, doesn't allow, doesn't allow for, um, for full development and full growth. That leads so well into my next question. Um, I, trauma is a really big deal in, in my practice as a therapist. And so been working with a lot of folks on that for a lot of years, but wondering how you think the church culture of that unquestioning compliance and like submission from women toward the men who lead them, how does that contribute to the predatory behavior, abuse, assault, and how can we resolve that in places and congregations that are kind of insulated and isolated? Mm. Yeah, it's such an important question, and I'm really glad that you're doing work in this area because it's so important. Um, So thank you for your your work, Katie. I love it. Um, yeah, well, that's good. We need people who love it, right? Because um, it's hard work. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, I want to tell a story about an interviewee, and and maybe just to say a word about, um, you know, I I have um, I grew up, of course, within this culture myself, and write a lot about my own experience growing up within this and within purity culture myself. But, you know, I also spent 12 years interviewing others who who were raised within. Um, the white American evangelical church as girls, um, looking at the way in which the purity movement, and they were really raised within the era of the purity movement, um, which I uh, define as being around the early 90s to the late 20, like around 2008 sort of area. Mm -hmm. Um, Although, again, the purity teachings predated it and postdated it. you know, so so I have lots of stories from from lots of um, lots of individuals who are raised as girls within this culture and others. And, um, and one of them is, a, a young woman named Laura. Um, uh, she's, she's, uh, one of the only people in the book who actually uses her real name. And she tells a story about how she came home to her parents one day from college and, um, told her parents that she had been gang raped at school and her father's first reaction and his first, um, comment to her, um, was what were you wearing? And that is something that um, 
he's a, a pastor. He was a pastor. And, um, and it was something that, you know, she was incredibly traumatized by. And though she has done a lot of work to heal and is truly a healer herself, um, she started an organization that is very, very powerful. Um, you know, that is something that she just keeps coming back to. The re-traumatization um, that happens when um, when the purity teachings um, shape people's responses to shape to uh, to to rape and yeah. to um, sexual violence. You know, she in many ways. You know, in my conversation with her, it almost felt like she um, like she was able to to process the the you know experience that she had, the violence that she experienced better than the response of, um, of her parents, you know? And, um, so, so, you know, you're really, you're really on to something when you talk about the purity teachings and their relationship to rape culture. Um, because I, you know, I think that, I think that in many ways the purity teachings created that response in her father. Um, you know, when we are raised within a culture where um, girls and women are told that, you know, if they dress the wrong way, that um, that boys and men will masturbate, you know, mm-hmm. or think about them the wrong way. Um, you know, how does how is that any different from um, from later on, you know, uh, a, you know, a girl or a woman coming forward and saying that she was raped and being told, um, you know, well, you, you know, you dressed the wrong way, um, or did whatever else you did wrong. So, so there, there is again, some real deep sort of, um, core teaching logic that we need to pull apart. We need to look at our teachings and imagine what happens when you play them out forward into people's lives. Mm-hmm. And, that's something that I think we skip a lot. We just look at we just look at a teaching in the vacuum of that sermon or in the vacuum of um, you know our own experience of somebody who's teaching that. But but we really need to think about how how these messages enter into into the the spectrum of um, experiences that people have, and particularly when we're talking about rape, which and sex violence, which is so very, very common, right? Um, You know, so so we need to be very careful with core teachings that are going to create the conditions for re-traumatization, recognizing that it is is so very, very common in our congregations. So so that's one thing that I would say is we need to go back and and rethink our ethic. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Creating that expectation of suffering, even, that suffering message that is really prevalent in in all of Christian culture and especially fundamentalist that women and girls are supposed to feel like if you're not suffering you're not doing it right <laughs> that and so leaking that into sexuality and leaking that into how one would experience um something that shouldn't have happened to them assault abuse rape any sort of predatory or emo- like even sometimes emotional abuse surrounding their sexuality. Um, what would you have to say to that about the suffering message? Because you experienced that pretty intensely with your Crohn's. Oh, big time! You know, so I write about I write about the um, boyfriend that I had in college in the book, and you know, he he wasn't raised a Christian and um, of any kind, and he was just utterly baffled by. <laughs> 
Really it's very confusing from the outside. <laughs> yeah, everything baffled him. Everything baffled him. And I remember one of the things that he was particularly baffled by is when I was going through a hard time, I would always say, this is good for me. And, um, you know, and, and, and when I was in a bad situation that I, you know, I think it would have been a healthy choice for me to leave. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I would stay. And, and I really had this, um, had this belief that I, I had to, if I was put into a situation where I was suffering, that I needed to suffer well and learn the lessons that I was put there for and to walk away and to take myself out of that would be, um, weakness in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. So, so there was, there was almost like this, um, uh, this almost martyr like experience that, um, that, that kept me in, um, a lot of, a lot of dangerous situations. And one of them, the one that you referred to, of course, is when I had Crohn's disease and the doctors weren't taking me seriously. And, um, and I was just losing a tremendous amount of blood and was in a horrific amount of pain. Yeah. And, and actually almost died, you know, which I really shouldn't have. I, that, that for where I was, it was very treatable. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, and I was quite, I, I mean, they were, they rushed me once they took it seriously, they really rushed me into surgery because they, and did it on a weekend because they didn't think I could wait until Monday. Mm. Um, so, you know, so, and, and part of the reason that I, um, that I got so sick is because I felt like I, you know, if they weren't taking me seriously, you know, that it must be my problem. I must not be suffering well enough. You know, mm. I mean, they seemed to think that everything was fine. So maybe I needed to just be spiritually stronger and, um, you know, and take more ibuprofen right, right. <laughs> and muscle, muscle through, right? And muscle <laughs> through. So rough. Uh, and I hear about that. I hear about that all the time. And, and I think that's one of the reasons that so much of um, the shame and the fear and the anxiety that I found in my interviewee stories, you know, tends to be silenced. People don't tend to talk about it. They feel like, they feel like they're the only ones who are experiencing it. And, um, and like, if they want to be a good Christian, they should just shut their mouth and grit their teeth and, um, and be strong and suffer well. It right. seems like we need to scream from the rooftops. You deserve to heal. That's like one of the main messages yeah. I took away from this is that everybody needs to know that the shame, the suffering, all of that. No, you deserve to have a good life and to heal and to be able to live in your own body. Yeah, and I don't think, you know, I think also I would shout from the rooftops, God God does not want for you to needlessly suffer to prove your love. Right. You know? yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like, there are so many better uses of your love for God in the world. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's so many great ways that you can show your love for God that, um, that you can do when you're well. Draw me close to you. Yeah, I, I, it's sad. Uh, you know, I, I was reading the story about your friend, and I, I wish it was like an isolated incident. You know, in in the way that the church handled it or didn't handle it, rather. Um, but you know, someone very near and dear to me went through a similar situation where and went to you know the people in the church because that's where you go. You know, the, of course, those people would be the first people that you would want to 
uh, to go and, and, and seek help. And yet they, you know, their first question was essentially like, well, what did you do? You know, well, what did yeah. you do to put yourself in that situation instead of doing, you know, the logical thing, you know? And, and so, um, unfortunately in, in her situation, you know, they kind of brushed it under the rug and then it wasn't until years later, we found out that he had forced himself on, on other women as well. And if we had, you know, yeah. if they had taken care of it the right way the first time, maybe there wouldn't have been more than one victim, you know? Uh, what, how do we, how do we fix that? How do we, because clearly churches are the place where you, you would think to go, but seem to be ill-equipped to handle situations like this. So what do we do to, to fix that? So I think, I think one of the, one of my thoughts is embedded into, you know, your story, this response about what did you do? You know, I think that is, that is the result of our misclassifying in many of our churches, uh, sexual violence as sexual expression or as sex. Right. And instead of classifying it as violence, you know, so long as we classify it as sex or sexual expression, um, you know, it, it functions by a totally different set of rules. And within the purity ethic, those rules include both parties being at fault. You know, the teaching, the purity ethic is one man, one woman in marriage forever. And everything, including sexual violence within this space, tends to be assessed by that ethic. So did it happen between one man and one woman in marriage forever? Well, then it couldn't possibly have been rape, even though you just described horrific violence, right? Right. Um, Did it happen um, outside of that context? You know, well, then it is both parties, um, you know, both parties are responsible and both parties are made impure by it, um, despite the fact that, uh, that you just described um, horrific violence again, right? So, so one of the answers is that we need to, as churches, we need to contend with the ways in which we categorize sexual violence as sex or sexuality and not as violence. And we need to totally reshape that. So one of the things that I would encourage churches do to do is to look into their bylaws and see um, see how they're talking about sexual violence. Are they are they um, talking about it if it if it is mentioned at all in their bylaws? Right, right, yeah. right. Which is another another question to assess, right? Um, you know, is it under a, a sexual guidelines category? Or is it under a violence and abuse category, right? So how are we, if we're talking about it at all, which we need to be, it needs to be in our church documentation, we need to have plans set forth for how we deal with um, sexual assault and abuse and violence, whether we're talking about um, a congregant, um, you know, reporting or um, about something that happened outside of the community or, you know, something that happens, um, you know, between, um, uh, you know, that happens because somebody has been, um, violated by someone who's in leadership at that church. Mm-hmm. So, so anyway, um, so so we definitely need to have have regulations set up so that when the moment comes, we actually are relying on the regulations that we have put into place, and we're not we're not sort of going off the cuff, which is what a, a lot of churches do, particularly churches that function independently um, and, uh, and don't have, don't have um, sort of larger denominational bylaws that they, um, that they um, refer to. So, um, so anyway, that, and then, and then secondarily, making sure that we are dealing with it as a, as a crime issue, as a violence issue. Um, this is not something that forgiveness is sufficient for, Absolutely right. Not. Right. This, this this is a crime. I, I I had a friend say to me recently, 
she said, when I go to a church and I see the word grace, um, whether it's in the name of the church or whether it's in their, their um, mission statement or whatever it is, she's like, whenever I see the word grace, I know it's not a safe place for me. Because as a survivor, I have had the word grace used against me over and over because people um, have been protected. Perpetrators have been protected. And churches have said, we're going to give this person grace and we're going to let them continue to pastor here or continue to lead Bible study or whatever it is um, because we're giving grace to the perpetrator and we are telling the survivor that they need to forgive and offer grace to the perpetrator as well. It's the whitewash Um, word. Which... Mm, right. Paint over Which, whatever has gone it, wrong. Exactly, exactly, and a way to shame the survivor into yeah. further silence, because um, because you know now if the survivor speaks up, they're not they're not living with grace. Yes, and um, so so anyway, so that's what happens when we think of it as when we think of it as sexuality and we categorize it as sin instead of think about it as violence and categorize it as a crime. That's a really important shift. That's really yeah vital. Um, so shifting a little bit, how do you think we should be handling giving direction to young people about their sexuality and about sex when the odds are very high that they will have more than one sexual partner based on length of time that people are taking before getting married and everything? How do we make the responsibilities of becoming sexually active have the importance to them without shame? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the research actually shows <clears throat> that abstinence only before marriage uh, messaging um, actually does not meaningfully decrease the number of sexual partners one has right. or delay the first stage of sexual encounter. Um, so, so this this teaching of just don't, um, you know, actually is not effective at, at having people just not. Agree. Um, right. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The data just shows us that. Um, But, you know, of course, the, you know, the data is also showing that the research is happening right now around shame is finding that um, in religious communities, um, when they're looking at this messaging, they find that it is very, very effective at something else. And and that is creating deep states of shame. so that's what we're really doing. So that's the first thing we need to like recognize that what we're really doing is not changing people's behavior, but just changing people's psychological relationship to self in a negative way yeah. um, that will actually make it um, more challenging for them to connect with others, um, those who are experiencing shame, because shame um, uh, causes disconnection from self and others. So, so, so what the research does tell us uh, work is comprehensive sexuality education where abstinence is put forth as an option um, Mm -hmm. and an important and a beautiful option, um, you know, that I have certainly, um, you know, found very, very important for me at various stages of my life. Um, But, you know, there, but people are also taught about um, other options and are given the message that, that they are going to be loved and they are going to be worthy and they are going to be acceptable, um, you know, uh, regardless of what choices that they make. Um, whereas the purity message teaches that if they, if they make the quote unquote wrong choice, they lose their worth, they lose their lovability, they lose their acceptability. So, so anyway, so what that does, um, you know, giving people, um, a variety of, of options is it, and, and telling them that they'll be loved regardless is first of all, it, it, um, creates a space where people, um, can actually, can actually get advice 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, they can, <laughs> they can actually say to someone, Hey, um, I'm thinking about this or I'm in this relationship and I feel uncomfortable in this way. This person is pressuring me, but you know, should like, you know, all, whatever their situation is, they now have a community that they can go to and they can, um, you know, they can speak to people and have open, honest conversations because they know that they're going to be loved. They know that they're not going to be told, oh, I, how dare you even question that you're, you know, you're, you know, impure and therefore unworthy now. Um, so it, so it creates a, an open lines of communication that allows people to make better, um, healthier, uh, decisions because they're not alone. Um, mm-hmm. and, and also, you know, one of the great things that can happen is, um, you can actually teach people how to make values based decisions. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm a I'm a big fan of the Our Whole Lives curriculum, the OWL curriculum, um, which is a, a values based sexuality education across the lifespan curriculum that teaches all different um, uh, you know uh, values like justice and inclusivity and self respect and you know whatever the different values are that um, that uh, you know if you don't want to use OWL that you want to lift up. Um, and then, and then teaches young people how to make a slew of different decisions um, using those values. So, how do you actually choose a friend? <laughs> you know, yeah. in a way that's yeah. a healthy, <laughs> a healthy choice, right? How do you choose a friend who's not going to treat you badly? Yeah, no um, other curriculum you know, is addressing that. No other no. curriculum is addressing <laughs> right. like how to kind of live broadly and as a whole person. And that's kind of where sex curric- and, and curriculum should live is about. How our how we do handle our whole lives? Exactly, exactly. That's exactly right. It's about something so much bigger, you know. And and it's a very strange thing that we have um, in our society as a whole, where we have you know basically the majority of the decisions that we make, um, you know, that we don't have a tremendous amount of shame around. Um, you know, we make we we teach people to make values based decisions, mm-hmm. right? We teach people <laughs> how to identify their values and live by them. Um, you know, those who are those who are in sort of communities that are teaching values at all. And, and yet when it comes to sex and sexuality, we throw the values out the window, right? Mm-hmm. And we don't talk about them at all. We just talk about, um, this one thing that will define your worth or that will define your worthlessness. Um, and, uh, and, and on just don't the, do it. That's, that's the message is just right. de- definitely just don't do this because then, then don't you're do it. Worthless. Don't think about it. Don't yeah. talk about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Right. And and that is very unhelpful when you are navigating um, uh, sexual violence. Um, you know, when you're a survivor, it's very unhelpful. When you're navigating um, sex within a marriage bed, it's you know there are all yeah. kinds of situations where that just offers no guidance whatsoever. I would I would wager to guess that that would probably be true for a number of topics. Avoidance usually doesn't work very well. You know, <laughs> right, 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 right. Oh gosh. Uh, so, so what are some ways, uh, some practical ways? Obviously, you were able to uh, to navigate uh, this kind of upbringing and 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 find healing. So, I, I, I'm sure that there are listeners who are listening to this right now who are saying who are, and this is maybe maybe a little bit painful. This is maybe bringing up some things that uh, that they experience firsthand. So, what are some things that you would suggest? Maybe some resources or, or something along those lines. Hmm. So I've become a, a great believer in um, this this um, phrase that I have started to repeat over and over, which is that we don't break free alone, that we only break free together. 
um, you know, for me, my healing, because this journey really started with my, my own pain and my own feeling of brokenness and my own feeling of aloneness. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, my healing didn't come when I first started to do this work on my own, which I did for about five years. I tried to, you know, heal on my own outside of community and I wasn't having much luck. And, um, you know, for me, what changed it was when I started to call up my girlfriends from back home in my, my church youth group and tell them what I was experiencing, uh, you know, about the shame and the fear and the anxiety that was sometimes manifesting in my body in ways that mimicked, you know, classic PTSD. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, listen as they told me almost the same exact stories from their own lives, you know, different stories, but the same core themes of experience and feeling, um, and, and of, um, PTSD like experiences included, you know, that, that was the big aha. That was the big moment that I started to feel like there really was hope. There really was a light at the end of the tunnel because, um, I wasn't alone. And that, that feeling of not being alone, um, allowed me to separate myself from what I was experiencing and to stop blaming myself for it and saying, you know, I'm the problem. I'm just messed up. I'm just bad. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just. And to look around and say, well, gosh, if we're all, if so many of us are experiencing this and we've all made different life decisions, some are still evangelical, some have left, some got married, some are single, you know, the whole range of, of choices that people made in their lives and we're, and we're, so many of us are experiencing this, then clearly, you know, the problem is something that is outside, um, that, that we learned, you know, there are too many of it, of us for it to be all of our fault. (laughs) And, um, and so, so the interviews that I ended up doing that started with that year in my hometown and, and that I did around the country then, you know, really were this, this sacred story exchange of, uh, of me telling a story and someone else telling their story to me and me being able to tell them about the stories of others like theirs. And over time, you know, so many of of us experienced uh, the healing that comes with realizing that we're not alone, and so that's so that's sort of the 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 crux I think is being able to to come into some kind of community, whether it's just one person that you tell your story to, uh, you know, not someone who's going to try to fix you, not someone who's going to try to save you, not someone mm-hmm. who's going to try to tell you what you're doing is wrong. Um, but just one person who you can tell your story to that you know is just going to listen and be there with you, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's the step that you're, that you're, you know, ready to take right now. Um, and I have an organization called Break Free Together that we're just starting out that provides other ways for people to be able to come into this story exchange um, in ways that, you know, we provide a spectrum that um, can meet people where they're at because not everyone is ready to tell you know, their story to the whole world, you know? Um, so, you know, so we have an option where people can send in a postcard with their story that I can post online and then their name isn't attached to it. Um, you know, we're doing a dinner model where people can tell their stories in an intimate in-person space where it's not shared publicly, um, you know, all different ways for us to be able to, to, um, to start to surface these things that tend to live, um, so deep, deep in our psyches. That is so cool. I'm, really interested in hosting a dinner. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, I love good. Okay, that. we should talk about that. Yeah. All right, good. Let's talk about it. 
Um, so one of the things that um, I, I thought was really interesting, and I, and I wanted to get to this earlier, but I want to make sure uh, that, that we mention it, is you, you mentioned something, uh, this effect on the brain where uh, the brain can't differentiate between uh, more minor trauma and large trauma. I thought that was absolutely fascinating, especially in how it connects with what we're talking about. Yeah, gosh, I thought that was fascinating too when I came across that. Um, you know, and and Brene Brown talks about how um how shame and uh experiences of having been shamed uh, are held in the body in the same way as trauma as these so it's really held in the body body as these small traumas. Mm-hmm. So, um you're exactly right. So so for the body, sometimes it can't tell the difference between whether you just experienced a car crash and literally had your life threatened or whether you have been shamed repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly over the course of your life and felt that your life was threatened because you were told that if you were found to be bad, that you would be kicked out of your community, which may as well be death. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so the body holds these two experiences in much the same way is, is essentially what the research shows. Um, you know, everybody experiences shame differently. So, you know, it's not, this is not necessarily going to be the case for every single individual, but, um, but this de-differentiation between um, perceived loss of life and actual loss of life is really, really important for us. And I think that that, that was a, 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 a big um, thing for me to understand because it, it gave some um, some sense of understanding for me um, to the PTSD like experiences that I was seeing among people and experiencing myself. You know, a lot of the individuals who I interviewed, um, you know, the reason that I I felt so much less alone is because they told me stories about nightmares that mimicked the stories of nightmares, you know, that I, I had myself. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they told me stories of um, having deep anxiety, uh, which for some people was uh, coming out in actual panic attacks where they were going to the hospital because they had so much sexual shame, um, which made me feel less alone when I had um, not anxiety attacks, but uh, physicalized anxiety to be sure. Um, you know, and they told me stories about, uh, you know, really Paranoia, um, you know, fear that became so great that it started to look like paranoia, where they felt like they were being followed when they went on dates, so that people would catch people with people trying to catch them being sexual, um, or whatever the case may be. That re- reminded me of the, the fear of my own life that I carried. You know, it there was there was um, there was uh, so much physicalized uh, manifestation of the fear and the shame, the anxiety that had felt. Um, had felt nonsensical to me when I was experiencing it on my own and was, uh, was something that I was interested in being so wide scale when I started to find it in other story and started to say, okay, it's not just me. This is bigger than me, but I still didn't know why, right? Like why? And it wasn't until I came across that research about, um, about shaming being, um, experienced as a Form of trauma in the body and the body uh, holding different forms of trauma, whether they are small or large in much the same way, that it suddenly clicked. And I said, oh, well, sure. It makes sense that we're having experiences that mimic um, post-traumatic stress disorder uh, because for many of us, our bodies, you know, have felt this messaging in ways that are similar to trauma. Well, and the saddest part, well, so many sad parts, it's not the saddest by any stretch, but this has really robbed so many women of 
fulfilling sexual relationships because the the need for relaxation and safety in order for women to experience pleasure in a sexual relationship everything you're describing is the exact opposite of that hmm. yeah it's sad that we are teaching people to experience shame and association with sexuality because sexuality is something that you want to be, um, you want to be connective. Absolutely. (laughs) That's part of its purpose. You know, it has, exactly. You have so much opportunity there for deep relational intimacy and connection. And, um, and we know that shame, we know that shame makes you more likely to disconnect from others, either because you, uh, go into yourself Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you're beating yourself up or whatever it is, you know, to lash out at others, to keep them away, to hide yourself, to run away, you know, whatever the case may be, you know, we know that shame creates disconnection. And what a, what a great tragedy, you know, absolutely. What a great tragedy that we take this God-given connective experience and lace it with something that is going to make that connection so much harder. Yeah, man. I know, I know we're getting close to, uh, uh, to the end of our time together, but I want to ask you more, one more question. And this is something that's been, I think, interesting to, to both myself and to Adam, um, who, um, sadly couldn't be with us tonight, but he and I both have very young five-year-old daughters. And, uh, it's been an interesting journey over the last several years, just hearing, um, the, the different stories. And it's also made us acutely aware of, um, you know, just the real, the realities of life. And, and especially from the perspective of trying to raise a young lady and, um, things to try to avoid obviously, and, and, um, learning from the mistakes of our, of our parents and that sort of thing. So, um, what would you, what would you say to the young men out there? Um, because clearly there's a, there's a, a level of accountability that the men need to take. Um, in this healing process and, and making sure that we have a healthier system in place going forward? Hmm. Well, first of all, I, I want to say that I know that you didn't get off easy either, guys. Um, you know, <laughs> this I have heard from many men who are experiencing um, uh, shame. This is not something that um, that is exclusive to women and girls' experiences. And in many ways, I feel like men have a, a unique challenge because, you know, we, as hard, it is, as hard as it is for, for us as women to come into voice around these things, um, you know, we are uh, expected to be emotional yeah. <laughs> and expected to, be, to talk about things in a way that, um, that men are not expected to be emotional or to talk about things. So you have in some ways a a greater sort of, um, uh, hurdle to overcome, to start to come into voice. Some of you, um, who, who are heavily influenced by those gender expectations. So, so I, my heart goes out to, to us all, you know, is the first thing I would say. Um, but the second thing I would say is that, you know, it's really important that you do your work on this because we all learned the same things. Um, we just learned, uh, we learned them about one another. So, you know, so women and girls are not the only ones who learned that we are not only responsible for our own sexual thoughts and feelings and behaviors, but for the sexual thoughts and feelings and behaviors of others toward us, you know, men and boys learned that too. 
Mm. Um, They learned that women and girls are responsible for their sexual thoughts and feelings, right? Um, And so that needs to be deconstructed in both of our our, um, understandings of the world. Um, you know, and so, so I think the more that we can do this work to, to pull apart how we've all been affected by this messaging, um, though that messaging is different, you know, we learn different things about ourselves, but, um, but we all learned it all, (laughs) you know, um, as, as girls, we also learned that, um, men and boys are, uh, hypersexual and are, um, uh, can't control themselves, you know, when faced with the female flesh, you know, and, and men and boys learned that too. Um, of course that is one of the, one of the many myths, right. Um, and, and we we all need to deconstruct that. So, so I think, I think sometimes, you know, when we think about these things, we think about these things as much like, you know, um, sexual violence and other issues, you know, sort of women and girls issues, women's issues, they need to deal with it, you know, poor things, (laughs) good luck. Um, (laughs) but, but we've all been shaped by these messages and, and the more that we can deconstruct them together in conversations like this, the more that we can really, um, start to teach, teach things differently to our children, because so long as we, so long as we fail to, to deconstruct them in ourselves, um, you know, as, as you all are, are so beautifully leading people to be able to do more and more, um, so long as we, you know, fail to deconstruct our, these things within ourselves, we will continue to, uh, teach what we learned, whether we want to or not. Yeah. My gosh. Yes. That's so important. Cause I'm raising two little boys, so <laughs> it's really vital for both for your kids of both sexes to know these these messages were wrong and and untrue and and how to rise above and and do things differently. Yeah, and you know it's funny because even when we disagree with them, if we haven't done our work to really pull them out and to really identify exactly what we disagree with and to reframe and reteach ourselves, uh, you know, a, a whole new theology really. Uh, you know, of, of how we want to be in the world, you know, we end up teaching it in the way that we uh, roll our eyes or the, the conversations we avoid or the, um, you know, the special treatment that we give to one gender over another or whatever it is. It just ends up being, um, we end up, even if we're not teaching it in words, um, per- continuing the cycle. Mm-hmm. Gosh, that's so important. That's I, so good. Yeah, we <laughs> we can't stress that enough. Is is this idea of reframing God in a way that I think makes more sense? You know, I, the the thing that I took from your book is I kept coming back to this idea, like, oh gosh, we've we've taught such a bipolar version of God. Who, you know, on one hand we we say on Sunday that he's this all powerful, all loving, you know, God, but on the other hand, if you do these certain, uh, you know sins or whatever you want to call them, you know, these behaviors, uh, then he's going to throw you into hell. You know, it's like, no wonder that, you know, folks are so confused uh, growing up and, and it's this very all or nothing kind of, um, proposition, which is just really sad and, and, and untrue and unhelpful, I think. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, Gosh. Yeah, I think I think you're 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 right, and um, and it creates a it creates a lot of confusion. Um, you know, when we have um, we think about parenting styles. You know, since we're talking about parenting right now, um, <laughs> you know the the attachment. Are you all familiar with it? Um, well, you are Katie the, oh, yeah. with the attachment. Yeah, mm-hmm. because you're a therapist. 
you know, so, you know, I think about the um, attachment models and how having a secure, loving parent creates a, a secure a child and a secure adult, somebody who knows that they're loved and knows that they're lovable and, you know, has, has a much easier time having healthy attachments in their relationships. And uh, a parent that is, um, that is, uh, Katie, maybe you can help me with a word, um, you know, sort of off and on, you know, sometimes, sometimes yeah, loving, sometimes messaging. hateful. Yeah. Yeah. The mixed messaging. Yeah. You know, um, creates an anxious creates an anxious baby and an anxious child, um, you know, and an anxious adult who struggles um, to, to trust that they are loved and lovable at all times. So, you know, so there is something really, really deep about um, really trusting that our God loves us and that we are lovable to our God and um, you know, I'm a I'm a believer that that um, that this pure and impu- pure impure language is, you know, that God shudders, <laughs> yes. you know, <laughs> yes. at the sound of it, you know, um, and and says no, you know, y- you are you are my child, you know, you are loved, and uh, and yet because we haven't we haven't embraced that. You know, we we have this false idea of this off again, on again, um, heavenly you know parent. Um, when in reactuality, you know, the God that I know is a very secure, uh, loving parent. Mm. Absolutely. Well, before we let you go, um, where can we send folks? Like, where's the best place to stay on top of what you're up to, and and hopefully when this curriculum comes out, to uh, stay on top of that as well. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, so I do have a website. Uh, it's my, my full name, so Linda, and then K-A-Y is my middle name, and Klein, uh, at .com. Uh, and there's a page there that's called Break Free Together where you can learn more about the Break Free Together work, um, and, uh, and you can also get there by breakfreetogether.org. Outstanding, and everybody should go out the, uh, go out and get the book. It's it's phenomenal. Um, even if you didn't experience it firsthand, um, it was extraordinarily eye opening for me, um, and and hopefully uh, will be something that's helpful for me. Um, you know, with with those around me, you know, in my in my circle of influence who who did experience it. So um, tremendous book, really well done, um, so helpful, and keep doing the work you're doing. And uh, thank you so much. It's been an absolute privilege having you on the on the show. Oh, John, this has been a, a just a delight, and I really appreciate you inviting me on. So thank you. Thank you to both you and to Katie as well. Yes, thank you for writing this book. Nothing I could do or say Make your love for me change There's no place I can run and hide Nothing I 
Could there? 